America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Yeah, everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also joining from Belgium. Today, we're going to be talking about Belarus. In August of 2020, Belarus held a presidential election. In this one, as in every presidential election is held since 1994, the winner was declared to be incumbent president Alexander Lukashenko. Well, in 1994, he just won the election. This time, tens of thousands of citizens came out into the streets to protest. They held strikes at their factories, and they otherwise complained that the election had been rigged and that the results the government had published, uh, showing an 80% support for the incumbent president, was, had been falsified. The government responded with harsh and sometimes violent crackdowns on protesters, on journalists, and on opposition figures, many of whom were forced to leave the country. This has continued to this day. European states imposed sanctions on Belarus, refused to recognize Lukashenko, and until quite recently, to even engage with him, to even speak to him directly. Things got worse over the summer when Belarus forced down the Ryan air flight with a Belarusian dissident on board and arrested him and his girlfriend. The situation between Belarus and its Western neighbors deteriorated even further when a different kind of crisis evolved at the Belarus-Polish border. In the summer of 2021, thousands of people, mainly from the Middle East, began gathering at the borders, not just between Belarus and Poland, but also Belarus and the Baltic states, Lithuania and Latvia, hoping to enter the EU. By autumn, this had become a humanitarian and diplomatic crisis. Brussels accused Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko of fomenting the emergency by helping migrants reach the border in an attempt to extract concessions and perhaps formal recognition of his performance in the elections. Instead, Poland continued to block access, although some people got through, and the EU announced a fifth package of sanctions that built on existing measures. Angela Merkel did speak to Lukashenko directly as Europe sought ways to resolve the situation. Now, back in August of 2020, we at Crisis Group warned against letting Belarus and its future become a political football between Russia and the West. But Lukashenko has worked hard to play exactly that card, claiming that the protests and really all opposition to him are Western-initiated and Western-backed. Against the backdrop of Russian military buildup near Ukraine, all of this seems particularly unnerving and unsettling. To help us make sense of it, we've invited Yevgeny Pryorman to join us here on War and Peace to talk about what's going on in Belarus, to talk about Belarus's relations with its neighbors and others, and to talk about how Belarus plays into the standoff between Russia and the West. Yevgeny is based in Minsk and has uh, extensive experience writing and thinking about the foreign policies of smaller states navigating great power competition. He's the founder and director of the Minsk Dialogue Council on International Relations, which offers an open platform for research and discussion of international affairs and security in Eastern Europe. He's also a regular contributor to a wealth of uh, Belarusian and international publications, a member of the Younger Generation Leaders Network on Euro-Atlantic Security, and of the OSCE Launch Collective Security Initiative team. Yevgeny, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. So the migrant crisis, is it over? Has everyone backed away? Well, it obviously doesn't look over, even though the tensions are going down. At least that's the dynamic we've observed beginning from first days of December, perhaps even a little bit earlier. 
And uh, I think an important factor for that was first and then the second phone calls between then Chancellor Merkel and Alexander Lukashenko. And of course, we saw all sorts of reactions to those calls inside the EU, in the West broader, and, uh, you know, in Russia, among the Belarusian opposition. But I think the very fact that the two people who make decisions had that conversation and that it was followed by another series of conversations between High Representative Burrell and the Belarusian foreign minister, but also a working level uh, mission was dispatched to Belarus, even though the Belarusian side was not particularly helpful about the contents and the results of those discussions. But I think it did help at least to make sure that people talk rather than, you know, just exchange all those media narratives and media accusations. And then it contributed, in my view, to the lowering of the tensions. And we still have at least 2,000 people who are blocked somewhere on the border. The Belarusian side offered them a place where they can stay, which is not as cold as that camp they had in the woods. But of course, this is far from a normal condition for those people. But from what we understand, quite a lot of those people, actually nearly all of them, are not willing to go back because they were all offered to take planes back to Iraq or to other countries of origin. And those who were willing, they did. The rest are still there. And in this respect, we still have the situation. And then finally, the European Union, in response to all these developments, adopted another already fifth package of sanctions against Belarus. And the big question is whether this move might, in a way, return us all to square one or whether it can you know, incentivize any other additional developments which might be negative perhaps even as negative as this migration crisis. So it's still still a question. What was Belarus looking for in starting this crisis? And did it get anything out of having manufactured it? Well, that's an interesting question, because when you listen to Belarusian officials, including Alexander Lukashenko, foreign minister representatives and the others, these trust a couple of things which are sort of a little bit different from the dominating media narrative in the West. In the West, it is all about Lukashenko having manufactured this crisis, having facilitated all this. I'm now not trying, you know, to pick a side and tell you who is right and who is wrong. But when looking at the statements by the Belarusian side, they stress three things. The first one is that they observed growing numbers of attempts to legally across the EU from the Belarusian territory beginning in January 2020. And then, according to the Belarusian sides, they tried reaching out to the EU in general and to the particular member states like Poland and Lithuania, offering them to hold consultations on the matter. And by the way, some instruments were already there on cross-border consultations. So according to Minsk, they wanted to use those instruments. And again, according to Minsk, no one on the EU side even responded. And of course, that represents the reality where the EU does not recognize Alexander Lukashenko as the legitimate leader of the country. And by refusing to talk to him and to his government, they continue to stress the political position. So then the second thing which Belarus stresses is that in 2020, I think on the 1st of July 2020, two important agreements became laws and became the facts of life 
those were the visa facilitation agreement between Belarus and the EU, and it was accompanied by the readmission agreement. As part of that agreement, the EU was to help Belarus to build those centers for illegal migrants who are detained and before they are sent back home have to stay there. So according to Minsk, the EU stopped financing the construction of those centers. And then the third thing which Minsk stresses are the sanctions. So all those three things put together, the Belarusian authorities say, sort of forced them to stop cooperating, to stop delivering on their end of cooperation on migration issues. And then already at the end of spring 2020, and most vividly and vocally in the summer of 2020, Lukashenko started saying openly that given all those circumstances, he was no longer going to protect the EU border from illegal migrants. In other words, he said that if people come to the Belarusian territory legally, if they have visas and all the other documents, we won't make all those extra checks to ensure that those people are not trying to cross into the EU. And obviously that sounded like an invitation for many, including all those who are part of transnational schemes of organizing illegal migration. Then we got all those numbers, which are indeed extraordinary and, you know, the horrible situation we have. So these are two different narratives we essentially have. And if you basically look at the narrative by the Belarusian side, what do they want to get? I guess they wanted cooperation on the EU side, and also they wanted to stop the sanctioning spiral. At least on the latter, we can now say that they haven't been successful because of the fifth package of sanctions has become a fact of life. But then a longer term question is whether even those minor attempts to talk and the conversations that Lukashenko held with Merkel might still be helpful. And if you know the fifth package is the last thing we get, and then after this package, there is a way to de-escalate, then perhaps in the longer term, we might conclude that Lukashenko did have a bit of success in this story. So how important is a dialogue with the EU countries to Lukashenko and why? You think a lot about countries, smaller countries that are stuck in these geopolitical tugs of war. Is that what's going on? Is Lukashenko nervous about having become too dependent on Moscow or trying to get the sanctions eased and trying to resolve very specific things that he needs to be able to talk to his counterparts in Western states to do? Well, I think it's everything put together. Well, first of all, if you look at Belarus in more sort of academic terms, this is a small state which sits in between two geopolitical centers of gravity. With one of those centers, it clearly has an asymmetric relationship. I mean, if you compare the level and degree of dependencies or interdependencies between Belarus and Russia and then compare it to the EU, these are very different stories. And that's why I don't think that anyone in Belarus, including the government, has ever been up to turn away from Russia, as some in Russia actually would accuse Lukashenko and the others in the last several years. It was more an exercise which I call in academic terms as foreign policy hedging, where you are basically reacting to both opportunities and risks, which inevitably arrive from both directions. And arguably from Russia, both opportunities and risks arrive in larger numbers compared to the EU, simply because the level and intensity of the relationship is much higher. And that's why you do need another geopolitical center of gravity to compensate for potential disadvantages or losses. 
and to acquire potential benefits, both in relations with Moscow, which is key, and then also in the relationship with the West, with the EU. Moreover, Belarus is what we call in economic terms a small open economy, and it hugely depends on foreign trade and primarily on exports. If you look at the structure of Belarusian foreign trade, traditionally we have quite a minus in trading with Russia because we buy a huge lot of oil and gas, crude oil and gas from Russia. And then most of this crude oil then gets reprocessed by Belarusian factories and we sell oil products to the West. For a long time, that's been a huge part of income and revenue for Belarus. So for this reason only, the EU is critical, as well as Ukraine, for example. But then, you know, looking more specifically at the developments after the 2020 presidential election in Belarus, of course, there is a problem. It is quite unprecedented what has happened ever since, because we would have somewhat similar situations in the past, in 2006, for example, in 2001, in 2010. But then the level of this diplomatic crisis in relations with the West was much slower and smaller, and never did it look so potentially dangerous. That is why I think under these given circumstances, Lukashenko is also interested in stopping this pressure from the West. And I don't think he's particularly eager or anxious to get a formal recognition by the West. But I think what he wants and what he needs is some kind of cooperation from the West, because otherwise, of course, there is little he can do if no one in the West wants to talk about that. But, uh, Johanny, there's an extraordinary losses seem to be envisaged from these sanctions. 7.5% of a country's GDP is by no means marginal. What impact is that having on daily life in Minsk? Is there any change coming up from below as a result of the economic fallout of all these tensions? Well, somewhat ironically, as of now, the change has only been um, about bringing discomfort. For instance, you can no longer fly normally to... <laughs> Poland to Lithuania or further in the EU. So when I had to take a flight to Geneva like a month ago, I had to do it via Istanbul. Another alternative is via Moscow. So on the western side, Belarus has been isolated. And that's the result of a specific development after May when there was this incident with the Ryanair uh, aircraft. But other than that, economically so far, it's been much better than last year. Because of the developments related to COVID and the decrease of demand for Belarusian industrial outputs in the EU and other countries due to COVID, this year has been particularly successful. So Belarusian economy is demonstrating quite essential growth compared to the previous year. And everyone is now saying that, okay, let's wait until next year. And that's when sanctions are going to start biting seriously. And most probably they will. Can you explain lower demand is driving growth? How does that work? Lower demand for Belarusian goods was registered in 2020. Oh, I see. It was essentially lower compared to 2019. And that's why we got this low base of comparison. And now the Belarusian economy has been performing really well compared to 2020. But since everyone expects sanctions to start biting seriously in 2022, then there are all sorts of projections that the Belarusian economy will go down, even though we'll look at serious economists, I mean, those who are not part of this government versus opposition ideological struggle, but those who are focusing on actual economic analysis, they still think that next year 
even with these sanctions, is not going to be horribly bad for the Belarusian economy. And then the key question with sanctions is not really about whether they hit the economy and whether the numbers go down. It's all about this potential linkage between the economic realm and the political realm, whether these sanctions can deter Lukashenko from doing the same horrible things or more horrible things, or whether they can force him to backtrack on the previously made decisions, and basically whether they can force him to behave as you know people in the EU and in the West in general would say. And then if we look at this record, I think it's very obvious that the track record has been the opposite. Sanctions have only been counterproductive because with every new episode of sanctions, with every new EU package of sanctions, Belarus and Lukashenko personally seem to think they need to respond. And because this is a small economy, which cannot respond by introducing a similar economic restriction, they can only respond in two ways. First, diplomatically, or let's say geopolitically, and that's expelling diplomats from Belarus or facilitating some difficult geopolitical situations, and then secondly, by becoming even more oppressive inside the country. And unfortunately, these two developments have been with us for the last year and a half. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and Hugh and I are talking to Yevgeny Pryorman about Belarus. So, Yevgeny, if sanctions can't make Lukashenko, as it were, behave, what could? Or is that just the wrong question? Is he not going to behave and Western states need to find a modus vivendi with a Belarus that is simply the way it is? First of all, I think that, of course, all those expectations that anything can make Lukashenko, who is a real authoritarian leader, a Democrat, are simply not grounded and, you know, based on illusions. That's why when I hear all those discussions in the EU or in the US that, oh, we tried sanctions, it didn't work. We tried talking to Lukashenko in dialogue, it didn't work. But then the question is, what exactly did you expect? So as I said, if you expect an authoritarian regime to become benign and democratic overnight or even over a longer term, it doesn't really work like that. But then I think that you cannot achieve anything by sanctioning a country, which first of all is determined to adhere to its course. And I mean, Lukashenko is determined to adhere to his course, but which is also hugely dependent or interdependent with Russia, which in no way is going to join your you know, sanctioning campaigns. So all you can achieve with that is only further breaking this very fabric of relations between Belarus and the rest of Europe. And I'm not even talking about political fabric, but rather about you know societal fabric, economic fabric, something which is really crucial in a strategic perspective. Once Lukashenko will be gone, so the question is then, you know, in what state will Belarus EU or Belarus West relations find themselves? And the more of sanctions and counter sanctions we have, worse prospects look for me from this point of view. But also, if the past and experience is of any lesson to us, I think there were quite a few episodes in the past. And we need to remember that we know Lukashenko almost for three decades. So he has always been pretty responsive to attempts to talk to him and to achieve some kind of agreements with him, which at least were not about 
him leaving the political scene in Belarus because everyone was surprised that Lukashenko did not pick pick up the phone in the August of 2020 when uh, then Chancellor Merkel called him two times. And of course he didn't because there was nothing to talk about from his point of view. She wanted him to hold another election, which would automatically mean he had to leave the political scene of Belarus because, you know, when an authoritarian leader agrees to a runoff, it automatically means he sends a signal which kills him. But then when he's engaged into a discussion about some broader issues where at least you want to stabilize the situation in the country, you want to make sure he stops doing the most egregious things, then I think he demonstrated on several occasions in the past that dialogue works. So the last thing to emphasize here is that besides just the idea of dialogue, I think Lukashenko only understands talking to some people of power because he usually, from what I was told, puts out this question. So if we agree on something, I can promise something and I will ensure this is delivered. But who are you to promise to me that your word is worth something? So things You imply that there's a kind of to and fro, there's a natural flow of events, but the things are, are really changing into a new area, aren't they? I mean, we're seeing troops coming up to the Polish border. We're seeing walls being talked about. We're seeing a, an actual cutting off of Belarus from the West, which seems to take us to a new area where there's military threats rising further away down on the Ukraine-Russian border. I mean, isn't this very alarming for someone in Lukashenko's position? Isn't it gone beyond the normal to and fro of great leaders speaking to each other? I certainly think it is a worrying development for everyone, including for Lukashenko. I think since August 2020, when he entered this political crisis, he's been in what we can call this modeling through survival mode, where you don't really have much time uh, and possibility to think strategically. And, you know, this is the classics of such situations. So you get into this action-reaction spiral, and then even if you theoretically realize what kind of risks are out there, somehow you get there. And I think this is the same situation. He does speak a lot about the dangers of this whole situation. And it is truly concerning. I mean, I already drew some parallels with the previous episodes of diplomatic confrontations between Belarus and the West, but this time it looks much, much worse, not only because the overall international environment is different and we see tensions growing everywhere. We see that against the background of this structural transformation of international relations, the international law is no longer operational, international institutions like the OSC are not delivering, and we can continue this list. But besides this, we also see that this seemingly small confrontation between Belarus and the West, I mean, small compared to some bigger problems in the world, is now going to create much more significant problems. And since I think a lot of people still think that Belarus is not that important and we can show our strength here, it can really get out of control. And what was important for regional security, especially after 2014, was that Belarus took this, what we call, situational neutrality stance, even though it has always been the ally of Russia. But because of the situational neutrality by Minsk, and because Minsk had bilateral confidence and security building measures with all its neighbors, including Ukraine, Poland, Latvia, and Lithuania, there was even a technical way to somehow minimize security and military risk in the region. 
But now that Belarus itself become the center of the problem, I think the potential scale of this regional escalation might become even much bigger than what we currently have. So that's sobering, if not downright depressing, Evgeny. Can you talk a little bit about how you see Lukashenko's relationship with Russia evolving over time? I mean, one of the hypotheses you hear put forward is that Russia is also not that thrilled with him. And although it certainly doesn't want him overthrown as a result of street protests, it wouldn't object to his eventual departure. What do you think of that argument? Well, I think that this is something which is shared by a lot of people in Russia. They all see that Lukashenko has been a difficult partner all these years, difficult in all possible respects. And of course, a lot of people in Russia would prefer him to step down and would like to have business with someone who is not this type of politician. At the same time, it is also right that Russia's support is not just about supporting Lukashenko. What they are doing is that they promote their interest, strategic interest, the way they understand and define it in Moscow. And it was very clear right from the beginning or even before this whole situation in and around Belarus began that it would be Moscow's line. Now that the tensions because of Ukraine are growing and overall tensions between uh, Russia and the West also seem to continue growing, I think it only means that the Belarus-Russia bond, if you will, will stay as strong as it is. And by the way, this is an interesting qualitative change compared to what we observed in, let's say, 2014, 2020, because at some point it appeared that this big strategic deal between Minsk and Moscow, which was achieved in the middle of the 90s, whereby Belarus would essentially sell its or exchange its geopolitical position and geopolitical loyalty to Russia in exchange for all sorts of economic benefits. So it seemed that after the Ukraine crisis, the deal was breaking itself. Because I think the two countries entered into a situation which international relations theorists explain as an intra-alliance security dilemma. When Russia made its decision as to Crimea and also took a political and perhaps military stance on Donbass, people in Minsk, Lukashenko personally, were worried that this kind of behavior by Russia would get Belarus into trouble. No one consulted them about those decisions in Crimea and Donbass, but then the decisions directly affected Belarus. So they didn't want to be entangled in that situation. People in Moscow on the other side started fearing that Belarus, who is a formal ally, would let them down and would not commit on their allied commitments. So they feared abandoning by Belarus. And as a result, all those political tensions between the two countries began. And we saw that in the spring and summer of 2020, they reached quite a dangerous point. So at some stage, it seemed that Lukashenko was sort of going to campaign on anti-Russian slogans during the presidential campaign. But then after August 2020, everything changed. So Lukashenko started to see the EU as the main and immediate threat to his power and to the national interest as he defines it. And then, of course, Russia was there by his side to help. So in this respect, I think this whole development has strengthened the bond between him and Putin quite seriously. 
Yuvani, this is something you study, small states in the international system, and you live in one. How typical do you think these dynamics are? What, if anything, is unusual about Belarus and its maneuvering between the great powers? Perhaps not unusual, but something you don't see in all small states is this difficult correlation between the small states' interests and small states' challenges in the international arena, just because, you know, it is surrounded by great powers that conflict between themselves and has to maneuver, and then the authoritarian nature of the political regime inside the country. Again, as I said, this is not something atypical or unusual, but perhaps in the European realities, this is something a lot of people have forgotten about and only read in textbooks. Because of this, you all the time have difficulties in explaining Minsk's behavior and also in predicting at what point it's going to act out of its more geopolitical understanding of things and its interests and when the authoritarian factor is going to come in. And this is what we observed clearly in August 2020, when at some point, you know, Lukashenko turns into a classical type of an omnibalancing actor. In other words, someone who is still continuing his geopolitical game, but the main fear, the main threat he perceives is that of Western nations trying to throw him. By the way, strategically, I think it's been a miscalculation by the West to basically make him think this way rather than trying to at least explain their bigger rationale in dealing with Belarus. And because of this, I'm afraid that this time the consequences of this crisis might indeed be serious and worrying in the longer term and not just for Belarus. If Belarus ceases to be this potentially stabilizing factor in East European security, which I think and I would argue it was in 2015-2020, I think the repercussions for the entire region are going to be dire, or at least we'll have to reformat everything in the region quite significantly before we can again talk about some kind of regional security architecture. But of course, this is not just the regional problem, right? We're observing somewhat similar developments in European security at large. What did you mean by reformatting the whole of Eastern European security? I think that in 2015, 2020, we observed two typical lines of behavior in East European security. One was represented by those smaller states who were trying to ensure that their allies are backing them up financially, politically, and militarily by increasing, well, tensions, but also rhetoric in regional security. And then there was Minsk, which was trying to adhere to an opposite strategy, trying to say that, look, we still have some opportunities to ensure that military risks in Eastern Europe are reduced which is particularly important because we see the whole architecture of arms control and strategic stability, which has been the cornerstone of European security since 1991, collapsing. So we need some regional mechanisms. And I remember when Lukashenko spoke at our Minsk Dialogue Forum in 2019, making this case and making it very clearly and I would say convincingly. But now that 
these developments inside and around Belarus are changing Minsk's behavior, I think we are losing this strategy in the region, which was trying to calm things down, to cool them down a little bit. And it means that the security spiral in the region will inevitably become more problematic. And if history is of any you know, lesson to us, I think this is not particularly helpful and <laughs> promising. Okay, Yevgeny, I hate to end on this note, but I fear this is the note we must end on. Thank you so much for joining us. I think you've given us a lot to think about, and I think also really just uh, crucial to get the perspective from Minsk on all of these issues. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a tremendous pleasure. And we hope you also learned from this conversation. To get more insights uh, from Yevgeny and to keep up with his work, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at YPreherman. Or in addition, you can check out the Minsk Dialogue website, which is conveniently minskdialogue.by. And to see Crisis Group's work on Europe and its neighbours, including the recent uh, upsurges of interest in, in Belarus itself, check out the regional pages on the left-hand side of our website home screen. That's crisisgroup.org. You should follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Oliker. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. And please don't hesitate to tweet at us with any suggestions you have for the podcast. We will be looking out for them. And we'd love it if you could leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast platform. War and Peace is a partner in a network of Europe-focused podcasts, Europod. Check out the others. Big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson, who helped get Ollie and I ready for each episode. The biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We look forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. For now, though, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.